Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. A painting, you can go and look at it again. A book, you can reread. Uh, a film, you can see again. But food is ephemeral. It's like music. It's like going and, and seeing a concert. I think there's, that's, that's, there's more of a connection between music and food than, than a painting. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today, Matt's talking to David Kinch, a cookbook author and the chef owner at Manresa in Northern California. Later, Max Felkowitz will answer a question from a listener. But Matt, tell me about your conversation with David Kinch. David Kinch, living legend. I love David. We talked about his restaurant, Manresa, and how he looks at service and how he looks at the food and really what goes into running one of America's top restaurants. We also talk about the old school, and we look back at some of his earlier days cooking in kitchens around the world. It's a great conversation. Here's Matt talking to David Kinch. David Kinch, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's exciting um, to have you in New York. You're usually in the Bay Area at your restaurants. Yes. But you're here. Um, you did a dinner, but you also have been cooking and researching pastas. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, we're opening up a restaurant at the end of the summer. Uh, it's going to be a casual concept, but I think it's going to be fun, and I want it to be authentic, and I, I want it to have a certain sense of quality. So uh, I'm trying to learn as much about pastas as I can, seeing uh, various productions, uh, production techniques, uh, different shapes and sizes, and see how everybody does certain things so I can decide how I want to do it myself. That's cool. And, and, yeah. and Mentone will be the restaurant and tell us a little bit about how, um, what is your point of view on an Italian restaurant? We can, we'll be talking about Manresa, but I'd like to hear about just entering that world. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is it's not really an Italian restaurant. Oh, okay. I, I like to think of it as a, you know, a cuisine of the Riviera. We are doing a, uh, we are going to try and do a fun and casual interpretation of uh, the cuisine between Nice and Genoa, which, you know, of course, it straddles the border. It straddles uh, both France and Italy. So people say it's an Italian restaurant. Yes, it is. I guess half of it is. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of geopolitical border, uh, it's really difficult to describe. But uh, there's a lot of similarity uh, along that stretch. You know, uh, that that part of France was part of Italy 150 mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, I think the the products and the sensibilities and how certain things go together are very similar to what we have along our central coast of California, which is which is where the real appeal is for me. Yeah, and this is where you've 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 established a career for the last uh, several years. So, but tell me, we're talking about butter over olive oil, right? In this cooking, uh, we're talking about olive oil over butter. Oh, okay. Yeah, Correct me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean. Um, we're going to do uh, – we're going to have pizzas. We're going to have pastas. We're going to have some really simple salads. 
and a lot of fun interpretive dishes. Mentone is the Italian name for the French border town yeah. of Menton. Um, it's French town, but it's yeah. right there on the border. So I think it gives a good sense of what we're trying to find. I, I describe it as a cuisine of the Riviera. I cannot wait to check it out. And it's in Santa Cruz. It's in Aptos, which is a small town about seven miles south of Santa Cruz. Oh. So it's going to be close to where I live. I'm a longtime resident of Santa okay. Cruz. So let's uh, go back a bit. I want to hear about New York in the 80s because you worked at Quilted Giraffe. and I, I, I don't feel... remember. No. Just no, you know. remember. We've, we've, I've met you. We've, I've interviewed you on this topic years ago. And it was such a great interview. I wanted to have you on the podcast just to hear a little bit about this time at Quilted Giraffe. We often don't think about Quilted Giraffe um, as this established restaurant in New York because it just was a while ago. Mm-hmm. We think about some of the older guard, like the Little Bernardins and the Daniels. But Quilted Giraffe was a super influential place. You were cooking there in 1985. Take us back to that time. Um, yeah, the, the, I think the, the Quilted Giraffe... Um, you know, it got four stars in the New York Times uh, in the early 80s, and it maintained it through its entire tenure in New York City as a restaurant. And I think its big influence was it was the first American restaurant, at least during that time, that kind of broke through the French hedge money of, you know, the Luz and La restaurants <laughs> that were around at that time. Everything was kind of uh, controlled by the old guard French um, really well established. They came up through respected ranks, um, and there was a system and a brigade and a certain way of doing things. And Barry, uh, Barry and Susan, Barry Wine, Wine yeah. Barry and Susan Wine, uh, they kind of came in. They were self-taught. They had a distinctly American point of view. Uh, uh, they were really idiosyncratic in how they approached things. They asked a lot of questions: why things were done a certain way, and. Uh, I got to hand it to them. You know, they kind of broke through. and uh, Fair to say the birth of new American cuisine? I think they were certainly a part of it. As, uh, you know, I don't know if it, they actually birthed the cuisine, but it, they certainly their, their work certainly heightened the awareness of the possibility and the potential that we had in America, especially in fine dining and fine dining restaurants. And you worked alongside Tom Colicchio among many chefs. What were some of the, the dishes that really – kind of were innovated there because i i'd like to get i like the la the death of the la or the evolution i'll say but what are some of the dishes that really are iconic from that era well there was you know there was some really hedonistic dishes i mean i guess this <laughs> most famous thing was the caviar beggars purses yeah. you know which you, you kind of ate with your hand but it's the menu changed often it changed quite seasonally uh, we used a lot of product from Barry's Farm that was up in New Paltz at the time, which was really kind of way ahead of the game as well. And But, uh, you know, I when I first staged there, come, I was coming back from France. I had worked in France for a year, and I was coming back, and I was looking for a place to work. And I, the, the time, you know, I spent two days in the kitchen there, and I was shocked at what I saw. Uh, there was the food was light, it was delicious, it was incredibly colorful. There was a real uh, emphasis on vegetables and fruits as part of the dishes, and there was just a, a real vibrancy that I really hadn't seen anywhere, even even in France. Even when, in when, France, when I, when I was you were going. letting these vegetables speak as opposed to manipulate. Well, they, yeah, they were. I mean, yeah. you know, it's uh, it was really really just something completely different and uh, that's what attracted me 
there. And, you know, I spent a good part of my, the majority of my time in New York was spent working in the kitchens. Take us back to post-shift, you know, the myth of the post-shift meal, going out and having some drinks after shift. Where were you eating in New York in 85, 86, 87 after your shift? It's a crazy time in the city's history. I want to hear about some of those, like, um, spots. You know, uh, there was a period of time, about halfway through my time at the Quilt Draft, where the cuisine took a, a decidedly Asian shift. Um, Barry went on a uh, Barry and Susan went on vacation to Japan, and he came back a, a pretty transformed guy. Uh, he brought back a lot of dishes and a lot of ideas about, and the we, the food actually took a really dramatic turn uh, during that time. And we learned a lot about a lot of different things. We kind of learned as we went, but post shift. Uh, Everybody started going to the, uh, these midtown Japanese restaurants, especially the ones that were open later. You know, there was a lot of restaurants that were uh, basement restaurants, uh, kind of word of mouth. They were open late, um, and we started frequenting a lot of them. Were they izakayas? Were you seeing noodles like soba and ramen? Um, I'm just really curious about how. No, it was more of an izakaya, yeah, yeah. izakaya thing. But it, you know, back you know, it was all new. Yeah. I mean, it was all exotic and it was all new. Um, you know, sushi was fairly exotic back then. Um, yeah. um, but just the other types of cooking, the grilling, the steaming, and all that sort of stuff, uh, we all became quite enamored with it. And you continued your, I mean, your fascination in travels to Japan are legendary. Uh, is that what started it, that time at Quilted Giraffe? I, I, think, I think that was a, a big part of it. Uh, you know, I'm attracted to... Um, you know, I'm attracted to Asian food, but J- Japanese in in particular, um, because of the precision. But I think and and the emphasis on the eye on on things looking really really pretty, and, and but for me the main reason is I look because they extract a tremendous amount of flavor and they find a lot of balance in their cooking with an absolute minimum amount of fat. In, in the cooking. And nowadays, I think uh, that is quite important. Um, for me, fine dining, fine dining, you know, it. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what fine dining is. Uh, I still think it's an idea factory. I think it, uh, uh, new ideas start. Uh, I think a lot of really small revolutionary concepts, you know, God is in the details start there and spread out. And I think part of the responsibility of, of fine dining nowadays is not only making food that is thought-provoking and perhaps a bit provocative, but it's also delicious. But I think we need to concentrate a little bit more on, on health and well-being mm-hmm. and, and, and responsibility, sustainability issues. And uh, um, so it's this not gratuitous use of fat that I find really yeah and you bring up a lot of topics point of view creativity uh, traveling through food all of those are emblematic of the art world those are all things we we observe in the art world we write often at In Taste we've written several essays about food and art and how they merge is food art David Kinch can you answer that question is food art well uh, food is a craft I mean um I mean, 98, 99% of the food that we eat, you know, it's, it's, it's fuel, it's sustenance. Uh, again, I think health and well-being and nutrition are, are, are stepping up to the forefront, which I think is really, really great. But in terms of art, 
Uh, there's very few artists. I think we only have an artist or two a generation. But things move fast nowadays. Um, uh, attention spans wane really easy. So things are moving so fast, it's really hard to pinpoint. Food, in terms of food itself being art, you know what? It's it's I find that hard to believe. You know, uh, you have a dish, um, uh, you eat it, and then it's gone. And then what it happens is it becomes a memory. And then your memory plays tricks on it. You know, a, a, a dish or a meal can grow in stature in your mind over time, and it can decrease as well. It can, as you know, as as your reference points become more and more fine tuned, then you say, well, maybe it wasn't that good, and you can't revisit it. You know, it's a memory. You can go and have the same dish, but depending on who you're with, the mood you were in, and that's that's where that memory starts. A painting, you can go and look at it again. A book, you can reread. Uh, a film, you can see again. But food is ephemeral. It's like music. It's like going and, and seeing a concert. I think there's, that's, that's, there's more of a connection between music and food than, than a painting hanging over Very the wall. Very good uh, statement. I, I really I respect that. I think uh, it, it even builds the case for why Michelin is important and reviewers are important because – um, because we do have this, there's a fleeting sense about the the gravity of a meal. Because you are having one six hours later, eight hours later, you're having coffee. Really well said. Let's talk about critics. And um, you have a new one in the Bay Area, Solejo. Uh, yes, we do. I wanted to ask you, um, just in general, um, what, how do you feel about having a new? Uh, you know, there was a long-standing critic in the Bay Area, uh, and now there's a new point of view. How do you feel about that? Uh, I don't, to be honest, I don't think much about it. I mean, we do what we do. Uh, we don't cook for critics. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't cook for Michelin. I mean, I, I may have evolved on that. I think I may have placed a greater importance on it, but, uh, I've come to realize that, you know, you do what we do. We, we do what we were trained to do, what we love to do. And you let certain things fall into place. You can't control what people are going to write about you. You can't control what they're going to think about it. You can do your best you can. You can take care of them. You know, maybe you recognize them, maybe you don't. But ultimately, you know, I think six your success is going to be based upon you cooking for your guests and you cooking, you know, being true to yourself. If you are cooking for stars or good reviews or for PR, <laughs> or to be famous, <laughs> then I think you tend to be disappointed in waiting a long time. And you have a shorter career, I feel. Yeah, well... I yeah. feel like if you if you do it for the wrong reasons. But let's talk about Manresa. What's happening at the restaurant? There's been quite an evolution there. Um, what's exciting yeah. now? We're entering spring into summer in Central California, in the Bay Area. We'll call it what it is. If the rain ever stops. Oh, yeah. It's know, been a wet. That's you know, right. It's, it's, it's winter. It's either raining or on fire. Oh, that's, boy. That's, uh, that's the story of our state the past year. Um, uh, well, Manresa, we, you know, we turned 17 years old this July, which is a lifetime in this restaurant business. Uh, I love going to work every day. Um, I think the restaurant now, uh, you know, my job at the restaurant is is to create a certain sense of dynamism, di- dynamic, you know, moving forward. Uh, you know, every day we try to incrementally be a little bit better, attention to detail, you know, whether it is trying to find better product, better quality product, how we prepare it, everything is geared in towards the guest experience. And, you know, I, 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 I don't 
I try not to blow my horn or anything like that, but my feeling is right now is that Manresa is a better restaurant now than it's ever been. Um, and uh, I'm very, very happy about that. The, uh, the hours are long, and I wanted to ask you, how do you keep your staff motivated, or are they seeking out employment with you because of the stature of the restaurant and the ideas that you're furthering there? Well, I think people, you know, uh, young cooks, I mean, I... It's what drew me to working at great mm-hmm. restaurants is, you know, you want to go someplace where uh, perhaps you can learn as much as possible. You know, you advance your career, build your resume. Um, but also, I like to think it's, you know, perhaps a work environment, too. I yeah. I like to think that our work environment is, is quite positive in a kitchen. Uh, uh, I like to retain people partly because I hate to train people. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, training people involves a lot of time. It involves a lot of money. It's it's a lot of time, you know, through HR and all that sort of stuff. I, You know, a revolving door of people coming and working for you for nine months or a year, I'd rather have cooks stay for two and a half to three years because not only do they perform really well, you know, with a certain sense of ease, but, uh, you know, it creates a a kind of a, a familial atmosphere. People know what other people's patterns are. And I think that is something that uh, translates into the intangible uh, happiness of the guests. I, I, I really, truly believe that. Uh, but my job is, you know, we're... You know, we're open for dinner only. We're open for only five days a week. Uh, it is indeed a long day, but, you know, the cook's... Uh, the cooks and the staff have uh, two days off. You know, we encourage them to work hard and to play hard, you know, to relax and be recharged. Um, I like to think the cooks in the station, they have uh, a great work area. They have heat source. They have refrigeration. They have counter space. They have natural light from the sunshine outdoors. They have water source. They have everything there to do their job properly in a positive work environment. And what I ask for in return is is absolute perfection. Yeah, of course. And that's, and that's you're giving them the tools. And I, yeah. I wanted to equate it to the, like the Broadway play or musical. It seems like with only five nights of service, only doing dinner, you have less stage time than a Broadway musical. Does it feel like stage time when your doors are open, guests are in Absolutely. Guests, uh, you know, a, a restaurant is, you know... Not uh, all restaurants are like that, I'll say. I'm heading well, to Cheesecake Factory later uh, today, happened to be there. It's going to be a little different than Manresa. No, I, I, no, I get it. I, I get it. But, you know, that's the whole point. You know, it's my restaurant. I, you know, I, uh, Manresa is my baby. It's the flagship. Sure. Uh, you know, we're doing other projects now, which are fun and exciting, but they're all tend to be casual. But Manresa is, you know, it, it has a life of its own. And um, a stature of its own, which uh, I greatly appreciate. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, a cook can be sick. Uh, a server can or a captain can be sick or hurts themselves. Uh, maybe the fish came in and it, we're not going to use it because it's not the quality we want. Mm-hmm. Guests don't want to hear about that. They don't care about that at 530 or 730 or whenever they're coming in. You know, it's 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 showtime. Uh, you can't let them know about your anxieties or your shortcomings or what situation you're in. You know, when the curtain goes up, you know, yeah. your smiles on your face, and 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 you do it. It's an amazing uh, event when you go to a, a meal and have a meal like at Manresa. It really feels like there is theater there. So I, I I'm happy that we could draw that parallel. Speaking of drama and theatrics, you 
are in New York. We're in New York now, and you dined at Danielle for the first time. I did. Danielle, sorry, Dan- I called yeah, Danielle. Uh, I did. Uh, wow, the place is like also like Manresa, kind of a legend. What it, was that like? Yeah, it was. It was well, I'm, I'm in town. I was in town to cook for an event called uh, uh, Le Polet, yeah. which is uh, a Burgundian wine organization that involves tons of winemakers. All the winemakers come. Mm-hmm. It's they, they do it every year. Obviously, they do it in Burgundy every year. Uh, but they do it every year in the United States as well. And it goes back and forth between San Francisco and New York, alternating years. And this year was New York. Uh, Danielle invited me to cook along with Melissa Rodriguez, um, very, very charming and uh, fantastic chef at Del Posto. Cesar Toigreau mm-hmm. from um, uh, Toigreau in France. And, uh, and of course, uh, Danielle. And, uh, of Baloo. Yes, Daniel Bulu, and uh, he invited me into the restaurant, and I had never been, and it was it was a fantastic experience. Uh, you know, if, if you know Danielle, you know he's got so much energy; he does not stop, just positive energy. So uh, we what was had a, the one course that really stuck out in your mind. Well, what was funny was is that when we came into the restaurant uh, and we sat down at the table, and they said, "Well, Danielle wants to see you guys in the kitchen." So we get up. And it's already it's like, you know, you're moving around and, and you go in the back and uh, Danielle and Cesar are pl- in the middle of plating dishes for a banquet. They're doing a banquet for one of the the, the uh, one of the, the wine domains, one of the French wine domains for 60 people. And they're back there and they have us there and they start giving us food, the entrees that are going out. We haven't even been into the restaurant five minutes and we're already re- uh, eating these 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 fantastic torts stuffed with set mush- preserves of set mushrooms and scallops. And literally five minutes in walking the door, we're eating an entree before we had anything at the table. <laughs> so uh, that was really fantastic. That was that was really a memorable moment. And then you're seated and you have your meal. And then we seated and then we went and had our meal. Yeah. Yeah. You've written a book, Manresa, with Christine Mulkey for Tensby Press, really um, iconic book. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, is there a follow-up in the works? We ask all guests, um, yes. I guess we could go back and say we ask all guests, uh, if you were to have your dream cookbook project, what would that project be? Well, uh, I am working on another book. I'm, uh, I'm starting to move a proposal around right now, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's, uh, it is... Um, all recipes are accessible. I mean, Man Race of the first book, um, we didn't compromise on how we did it. Uh, you know, it was a conscious decision that we made, and we realized that some people would find things perhaps too ambitious or too time-consuming to do, but we wanted to paint a, a real true picture about the work and the thought processes that went in behind the dishes that we do. This one is completely different. You know, I, I love to cook. I, I, you know, I'm in this, mm-hmm. I do what I do because, not because of the restaurant business, but because of the physical act of cooking. It's something that gives me great pleasure, great joy, still does. I cook on my days off. I cook for friends and family on my days off. So these recipes will be centered more around what I cook for myself, what could I cook for friends, and and doing it at home. That sounds so exciting. What are some of the like? What did you What did you make? La- like when you have a free moment for your friends? Um, well, I, I you know I actually I have a lot of dinner parties. You know I, I do a lot of dinner parties where we open up oysters, we drink good wines, we cook food that's really simple. We either cook it on a grill or in the kitchen. We we fool around with a lot of different things, uh, and that's what I want is. Uh, uh, a, a collection of recipes that everybody looks at and feels 
that they would attempt it. They, they, you know, they, they don't feel intimidated mm-hmm. by by it. Uh, I don't want anything to have really more than five ingredients in it. I don't want anything. If you can't find it at Whole Foods, then uh, the product's not going to be that's, added. So that's what we're doing. I can't wait to read it. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast, David Kinch. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Here's Max Felkowitz tackling a listener question. Hey, Max, we have a question from a a listener for you. Tell me, what is it? Why is vanilla so expensive? So this is a question people ask a lot when they're shopping for vanilla beans. And the real answer is vanilla beans aren't expensive enough because they're propagated by a tropical vine that only grows in really specific climactic conditions. And it's really hard, virtually impossible to cultivate these vines. They basically only grow wild. And it takes about two to four years for them to grow a pod that's the size and shape of a string bean. And that can only be picked uh, once it hits a certain ripeness. And then it takes about six months of curing the bean in these like blankets under the hot sun until you turn it from this little fresh string bean into this dark, shrivelly, wrinkled, like super fragrant vanilla bean. On top of that, the vines can only be pollinated like one day a year by wild bees. And on top of that, the last two years of harvests have been really bad. So 2018 prices were like $600 a kilogram, and that's on the wholesale market. So don't expect to be seeing any like decreases in prices in vanilla for the like for the foreseeable future. Um, but on the plus side, uh, this means that more people are getting to enjoy vanilla and getting to realize why it's so good. So I should stop groaning next time I buy a bottle and it's so expensive. It's one of those things where we get to appreciate how much these foods were valued back before industrial agriculture was possible and why they're considered so precious. And it should give us um, a newfound appreciation for this weird little plant that we take for granted. Thanks, Max. Here's an interview with Louisiana chef Isaac Toops. Isaac Toops, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Oh, it's we've just been talking about this this cookbook cover. Uh, listener, you should go right to Amazon or your or go to your indie store, pick it off the shelf, take a look at it because it is like my favorite of the year. It's such a great cover. Thank you, and buy it as well. I mean, you know, pick it up, go to Amazon, but <laughs> yes, click on buy as well. Definitely. We love you. <laughs> buy it, but I want to take us through the cover because you're um, smiling. You have this uh, shaker of a of a powder, and then you're tossing these uh, fried uh, nuggets that look like tater tots, but they're probably not. Explain the cover, please, Isaac. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it from here. So the shaker of spice is crack spice because those are cracklings. I'm tossing the bowl. So cracklins are pretty much put me on the map in New Orleans, and they're uh, traditionally called gratins, but no one, that's the old French word for it, but they're a double fried skin on pork belly. So it's like a chicharron, but instead of just having crispy skin, you have this crispy skin and the, the, the meaty meat and the juicy fat, and that's what makes them the cracklins. So that's pretty much, I, I put out the best in New Orleans, and no, I'm not shy about it. No, and, Challenge me. And honestly, it feels sounds very chefy, but you can actually make this dish at home? You can make this dish. If you can get skin on pork belly, you know, you might have to go to the Asian store, the Spanish store, to get skin on skin on pork belly. But um, it's a simple recipe, but it's very technique-driven. So even though it's too... Ingredients to make, it's 
hog lard, and skin on pork belly. It's almost like making risotto. You got to do it a couple times, and you have to pay attention to it the whole time. But what a party trick to bring out the this dish. Oh, my God. You would be labeled a badass <laughs> if you could, like, pull this off and bring this to a party. Yeah. But I walk you through it, and we worked really hard to make sure that the recipes work. So it's not just list of recipes and all willy-nilly. Well, congrats on the cover uh, and the book. We'll talk about that. But let's talk about uh, the book Chasing the Gator. Uh, it's been called the Cajun Bible. And I want to start by asking you, uh, what exactly is Cajun cooking and what is not Cajun cooking? Right. Well, first off, the Cajun Bible, that's very intimidating. Wow. Um, I, I appreciate the compliment, but it might be a little much. <laughs> so basically, um, the book is you know kind of the t- telling of my personal story of, of what I take for Cajun food. And while there is very traditional recipes, cracklins, dirty rice, and boudin in the book, uh, Cajun food is food from the earth and food from the land around us. You know, um, the Cajuns were, came from France and to Nova Scotia and then exiled mm-hmm. from can- Canada to South Louisiana, which I don't know how badass you have to be to be exiled from Canada. Have you been there? They're <laughs> super nice. And we pick up stuff along the way, but we use what's around us. So people ask, well, why do you use so much pigs and sugarcane and rice and crawfish? It grows all around us. So we take whatever's around the land and use that, and we're very proud of our culture. You know, there's not a lot of places where we kept our roots and we kept our good feelings and we kept that all the French backgrounds and using from the land. So we use dark ruse and we use those old French techniques, which is kind of fallen off the mainstream, and we still very proud and utilization of our culture. So that's what Cajun food was, and Cajun food is kind of, you know, if the Cajuns using modern ingredients. And modern techniques. I mean, I live in New Orleans. I trained under Emil Lagasse. I've got all these classic and new techniques to utilize with my Cajun background. I can get almost anything in the world nowadays and put a Cajun spin on that. So that's what Cajun food was and that's what Cajun food is. At the same time, you know, I call my food contemporary Cajun, but I really hate labeling my food. Because sometimes I want to use an aged Korean soy sauce and sometimes I want to use dashi from Japan. Mm -hmm. And those aren't Cajun ingredients, but I'm still using with my... Grew up and born and raised in Cajun country mentality. Are you? Have you been to France? Have you traveled and had the food there? Oh yeah, love France. Love uh, Dijon. Uh, I'm sorry, Lyon is my probably my favorite city. What a cool city on on the earth. What a great food city. I mean, are you finding in parts of France this, these these dishes are are being cooked uh, that you that seem familiar to yourself? Uh, funny story. So I'm in Lyon, and uh, it was our tenth wedding anniversary. Me and my wife, and walking in this little bouchon. And the chef comes out, takes our order, and as he takes our order, he hands me down a little bowl, and it's got cracklins and salami in it. And I looked at him, looked at him and said, we're going to be good friends. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, you find these dishes that are similar, uh, and they're still at the same time, you know, a little more old school. So you get these like, oh, man, I, I've had something like that. And, but you get that the separation of hundreds of years. You write about the Cajun Trinity. Mm-hmm. What exactly is that? I think it's super interesting. I've never heard about it before. Uh, Trinity, I mean, almost every culture with a good food quality has their own version of Trinity. So the French have mirepoix and also uh, sofrito. So the Cajun Trinity is you know, the ones that grow around us, celery, onion, and bell pepper. Instead, of, we switch out the bell pepper for carrot. Mm-hmm. Um, and mirepoix. And, yeah. mir- and mirepoix. And we also – so the Trinity – those three things, but you always have garlic in there, and that's the one you have to mention. So they say that you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but you have to add the Pope, and the Pope is garlic. <laughs> and lots of it, too. Don't shy away from garlic. Yeah, garlic is, is definitely a, a lifeblood down in Louisiana, but the bell pepper is interesting to me because it feels like it's a neglected vegetable in cooking, right? 
Uh, yeah, it's underutilized, yeah. And, uh, and the things you could put it in, and the versatility of it. And we stuff them, we roast them hard, and then have roasted bell peppers. We make uh, you know sauces with them. In fact, it's essential for several of my dishes in here, especially my my grandmother's red cuvillon has to have the red bell pepper for the coloring and the sweetness. Love that. Um, how much did Justin Wilson inspire you? Oh man, as any Cajun boy growing up. Justin Wilson was like the father figure for even before I got into professional cooking. He was just fun to watch. Let's explain who he was first, because for me, I I thought of Justin Wilson as this iconic. I watched him in the 80s instructor of food of a place that I'd never been to, never even imagined. I didn't even as a kid, I didn't even think it was in the United States. The accent, I thought it was a foreign guy. Right. But he was on PBS teaching the cuisine of the Cajun uh, and like the the cookbooks of Cajun. For those of you who don't know, he's pretty much the uh, thick accented wild Cajun Julia Childs. <laughs> so he he's sitting there and he's teaching you, you know, step by step how to make these proper Cajun dishes. He's gonna have a sip of his sherry wine while while he's while he's cooking. And his accent real thick, brah. I mean, you can only barely understand him if you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and he's gonna tell you a story about hunting, and he's gonna tell you a lie, and then he's gonna show you how to make these awesome cool. Cajun dishes. He's you know, the godfather of Cajun TV. So you watched him growing up? Absolutely. Oh, and, I mean, did you ever get to interact with him and his, or his family? I never got to meet him, unfortunately. Oh, man. Yeah. Missed out on that. Uh, could you be the next Justin Wilson? I'll, I'll be the first Isaac Toops. In, love it. In the, in the light of Justin Wilson. I love it. You, of course, you are your own person, but I think this cuisine and teaching a new generation about the cooking traditions of Louisiana is kind of important. Oh, very much so. And um, we, we always keep our cultural, again, like very close to the heart and it, very important to us. As I say in the book, I mean, I want to keep that going and I want to keep pushing that. So I teach my children how to cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave my first, uh, my seven-year-old her first knife at seven and she's in the kitchen cooking with me. And she may not always eat the things I cook, mm-hmm. but she's a normal kid. But I think it's very important to educate people on what Cajun food is, what it's become and where it came from. We always remember that, and we still want to share that. I mean, you sit down with a beard, and I'll just talk all day about Cajun food. And really, I wanted to segue to this kind of observation I've, I've made. I've, I've had Cajun food outside of New Orleans, big air quotes there, but it's never felt real to me. It's never felt like there was something missing. I mean, of course, you can eat Italian food in America that's as good as anywhere in Italy. That's unequivocal. I will go to the mat on that one. But what is it about Cajun food that is so difficult to replicate that in like places like New York City? Like I really don't haven't had great Cajun food in New York City, Chicago, etc. But we see these restaurants all around. Uh, you know, you bring up a question I can't answer because, you know, I. but it's been said and it's not my quote, but New Orleans Cajun food and Cajun food in general is only good in South Louisiana. And I don't know why, because I'm in South Louisiana cooking good Cajun food. And it's something I don't really go out and try to find, honestly. Whenever I travel to New York, the last thing I'm going to do is try to find good Cajun food. I'm going to go out and try different things. So it's almost like New York pizza. You can only find good New York pizza in New York for some reason, and I'm not sure why, because people are trying to do it in New Orleans, and they're falling flat on their face. It has to do with the Cajun Trinity, probably. It probably has to do with maybe not having the right products, right? Um, You know, I mean, I've, I've come up to New York and cooked good Cajun food at the Beard House and cooked good crawfish at other places. And yeah. Maybe maybe it's the know-how. Maybe it's people, what they think is Cajun is not authentic. Maybe you need to have a proper Cajun come up here. I don't know. Someone in New York's doing it. Isaac, it's a great reason just to go to New Orleans and visit and do some traveling. Tell me, outside of New Orleans, uh, where should I go? I should rent a car, of course. Where should I go? 
Uh, you should definitely go around proper Cajun country. Uh, I was born and raised in Rain, Louisiana, right outside Lafayette. And around Lafayette area, there's you can get these little stops of Boudin and Cracklin. And you should go to like a Boudin Cracklin tour is what you should do. Oh. So a lot of places, just their gas stations that also sell, you know, sausage and charise. And you can get a stuffed uh, pork belly. It's uh, called uh, Chaudin, and it's essentially almost it's Cajun haggis, except it's good. <laughs> I love it. Cajun haggis, except it's good. I just pissed off a lot of Scots. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't prep you on this question, but, I mean, are you an LSU fan by chance? You, ha- you have to be. It's, it's, you have it's, to be. You have to be. You have to be a Saints fan, and you have to be an LSU fan growing up in South Louisiana. No fans or butts. Let's talk about the tailgating at these games, because I went. I was able to go down there, I think, in like 2000, 2001, and I, I hung out with a guy named the Crew Ragu, who does this epic tailgating spread, and it was like nothing I've ever had at a sporting event. I went to college in the University of Wisconsin, which has great tailgating. So tell me about what's so special about LSU football Saturdays. Uh, you know, the tailgating might actually be better than the game. Uh, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. definitely, <laughs> it's 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 revelrous. And, you know, uh, Cajuns and South Louisianians don't need an excuse to party. And that is a straight up excuse to party. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you get together, you have a bunch of beer, you, you put down the tailgate. Somebody's either grilling burgers on a small or someone has mm-hmm. these humongous spreads. And it's almost bragging rights of who has the biggest setup and who has the biggest rig and who's putting out the best food. It, it's damn near a competition with, with revelry, you know. And then you go to the game, you're already half lit, you're screaming, you're hollering, go Tigers. Yeah. Do you ever go to Baton Rouge? Do you ever get to go to those games or hang out in Baton Rouge? I, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll get to break off. But a lot of most of the time, I'm straight up working. You're working. You run yeah. restaurants. I want to know, too, about Popeyes because you talk about in the book your daughter uh, demanding that your uh, dirty rice uh, be like Popeyes dirty rice. Right, because, you know, um, all of us grow up eating Popeyes and I don't eat fast food unless, of course, it's Popeyes. Uh, I love it. How's that? Yeah, this is like, no, no, I don't want it fast food. What about Popeyes? Oh, okay. It's just fried chicken, right? It's okay. And yeah, and so, of course, um, when we go to order, we actually, I know I have the entire family's order memorized because everybody likes specific things. And my eldest daughter likes the dirty rice. And I was cooking dirty rice, yeah. but it didn't look like Popeye's because, no. you know, mine was made from scratch. And then my wife chimed in like the brilliant woman she is and said, Poppy, you know, your father taught Popeye how to cook. And I'm like, wow, that was good. Gangsta. That was good. You know? <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the biscuits, though. Come on. Like, the Popeye's biscuits are kind of iconic, right? They're pretty good. Though they're good, warm. Once they get cold, oh, yeah. uh, you just throw them away. All that food is has to be warm. Uh, the, actually, the chicken's okay pretty cold. Uh, a cold fried chicken out, out of the fridge. I always order a couple extra pieces. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. God, we have a couple Popeye's here in New York. I think I might be going there this afternoon. <laughs> it's good stuff. Come with you. Your photographer, Denny Colbert. He is a great guy. Like, he shoots for taste. How, what was that like collaborating with him? I just have to give him a shout out because he's one of my favorite guys. Uh, he's one of my favorite guys. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, we sort of, this friendship uh, way back in the day, uh, I forget exactly how I met him, but um, uh, I think it was just at a private dinner and he was taking pictures and we saw him like, oh man, I want him to come over to my restaurant and shoot my pictures for Instagram and our, um, this is way before the book even yeah. was conceived. And I remember he's showing me a picture of something. I'm like, wow, Danny. It looks so beautiful. Whose food is that? And just looked at me and goes, I think that's your food. <laughs> like, holy hell. So he's he's able to make my food look mm-hmm. less brown and better than it actually yeah. looks, like, with your eyes, which is just amazing. And the book is just a perfect example of just wonderful photography, wonderful writing, and my jungle mass of a brain that is, that is mine. 
I mean, Jennifer, too. Let's talk about Jennifer Cole because she's um, a, an amazing journalist. And um, and this is her first book, right? Uh, this is her first uh, cookbook. Cookbook, yes. yeah. Cool. Uh, and she's, uh, again, just an amazing part of uh, of Team Tubes nowadays. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we made friends and we were just like, hey, we want to do a book. You want to write it? And she's like, yeah, sure. And then we call up Jenny. Hey, Danny, we writing a book. We want to shoot it? Like, yeah. <laughs> and I, I do like to say that Jennifer made it inside my brain and then successfully made it out. Oh. Uh, which is which is difficult to do because I can I ramble all day and so she would just put a tape recorder down and we would crack a beer and mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. and talk and talk and she actually had too much information she said and it was filtering through all my ramblings and get it down and the funny part is so she was writing another article not about me but about something else and had to rewrite it because she wrote it in 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 my vocabulary in your voice in my voice she's That's like oh my god I need to so we actually had to spend some time away from each yeah. other for her to equal e- 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 Equilibrate, equilibrate. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. I think balance her, her Isaac tube or or ex ex excommunicate the Isaac tubes out of her. Exactly. I think we landed on a good one there. So tell me about your restaurant. Um, Is there plans for an expansion? Well, we are we are at two, and uh, the. Oh, I'm sorry, you're at two. Yeah, no, that's okay. The second restaurant, Tube South. Oh, um, we're right at two years. Oh, great! So it's still in the brooding toddler stage, and you don't want two toddlers <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. So expansion's always on the brain. But for right now, uh, you know, we we just got the book. Yeah, we're focusing on uh, you know, some, some, a little bit of TV stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, just make sure that the restaurants are locked down. I want the restaurants completely locked down before I open up another one. Yeah. Otherwise, you get you just you spread yourself too thin. New Orleans is probably, maybe outside of New York, the second tourist destination in America. I'd love to get your thoughts on some other restaurants that you, outside of yours, of course, that you you would recommend our listeners visiting when going down to New Orleans because it's there's a lot of great restaurants there. There's a lot of great restaurants down there, and that's a much better question than what do I like to what what's my favorite thing to cook because that's I always get that one. But people should ask where do I like to eat because that's the good question. So probably my number one place to eat right now is Margie's Grill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, Chef Marcus there does some um, some Thai food. He travels to Thailand a lot, mm-hmm. and it's just really bright and it's spicy. And uh, his his technique with, with meats and grills and smoking is just completely on point. And it's a little hole in the wall restaurant, which I love. Mm-hmm. Getting killer food, a hole in the wall restaurant. It's not even that expensive. Um, Saint James Cheese Shop is one of my favorites. A Turkey and the Wolf. Uh, my friend Mason does this this high end uh, low brow low brow high brow food. Mm-hmm. It's his own uh, unique take on it, and that's what I like. I like when people take their food and not hold a bunch of seriousness themselves, but put a ton of effort into their food. Uh, we spend a lot of time at Mofo, mm-hmm. uh, my friend Mike's place, uh, Willa Jean, my friend yeah. Kelly, uh, real badass. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, Company Burger is a great burger. Compare La Pain, uh, Nina Chef Nina does a, a killer job there. Uh, I could go on. How many more you want? <laughs> I mean, these are all great picks. Um, is Coop still okay? I have not been to Coop's in years, so yeah. I, I cannot comment. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm not going to comment on a place I don't go. That was one of my favorite early spots in my first trips to New Orleans. I, I love their jambalaya, but you cannot comment. Diplomatic <laughs> of you. What's the big garden place, the massive Bacchanal? Bacchanal. Oh, Bacchanal. great wine program. 
I mean, just yeah. a killer wine program. And especially, I like to go when they have live music. Yeah. And then they'll have guest chefs do appearances. You can get a great cheese board there anytime. Mm-hmm. But the wine list, they deserve all the accolades they get. Yeah. And I, m- my wife is a French wine scholar. so Oh, wow. She always likes and really appreciates good wine. In fact, if you don't have a good wine list, chances are we're not going. <laughs> That's great. Well, sorry I had to really grill you there because it is such a wonderful city to visit as a, as a tourist who loves food. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if... if New York, Chicago, New Orleans, those are the top tier places you, you want to go for food. And uh, even though we're a, we act like a big city, we're, we're a small city. And we, we do have more restaurants per capita than anywhere else. So it's, it's, it's a rough business, but I enjoy it. It's uh, cool. We ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast, if you were to have a dream cookbook project for your second book, what would that project be? Uh, I've actually already got the title and the chapters. I, I wrote it in one night because I thought it was a, a great idea because people were telling me, yeah, the recipes are good and they're authentic, and I love your stories. But man, could we have more of these psychotic stories? So, what are the other wild stories I have in my brain? So, I just this is I, this isn't even approved with the publisher yet. But <laughs> Tomahawk Toops and Tales of the Psychotic Kunas, or Tales of the Psychotic Cajun, because uh, I have all these stories from working with Emerald to growing up in Cajun country to to hunting, to fishing, and fist fights and drinking, and all these like, wild stories that that every time I tell somebody, like, wow, man, you should put that in a book. I'm like. I should put that in a book, and so far Jennifer L- likes it, and Denny likes it. <laughs> so, that's your team. That's team. Yeah, tubes that's right team. There. Tubes Bring right them there back together, and we'll just tack on recipes with that and make it a wild and crazy book. Yeah, because uh, I never wanted ever just a list of recipes. I thought that was boring. I wanted to tell a story. Yeah. So life and times of the psychotic Cajun will be coming soon. Hopefully, let's make it happen, and maybe there'll be some knife throwing in it. Oh, you know there is. <laughs> You're quite the knife thrower, Isaac Tubes. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much. Had a great time. Anytime, guys. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.